Good morning. I do want to welcome everyone here this morning again. We're happy to have you here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do want to uh, reiterate a word or two that Dave mentioned in the announcements, and that is that we are in uh, the last part of a four-part series on spiritual gifts. Um, I do trust that as we go through some of the, the material this morning, we'll recognize that this is not all that the Scripture has to say on spiritual gifts. In fact, as Dave said, uh, much of what was said in the first three weeks was the foundation. It was building up to uh, today where we're going to look at the spiritual gifts themselves, uh, at least as much as time will allow. But that's not to say by any stretch that what's been covered to date is not important. In fact, it's extremely important. It is the foundational, the stepping stones to get to where we are uh, today. So we're going to uh, just briefly run through uh, some of what we covered over the last three weeks. Very quickly, as quickly as we can. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm advancing. It's not going. You give me help there if you can or connect me. All right. So uh, message number one, we considered a working definition of spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? And so uh, we said spiritual gifts are supernatural abilities or special enablements sent from God by grace to maximize a Christian spiritual service. Uh, their end goals are the edification of the body of Christ and the glorification of God. Uh, this is not taken from a specific text of Scripture, but from taking the spiritual gifts as a whole and trying to put uh, a working definition. It's not the final definition, but a working definition to spiritual gifts. So in message number one, we took that definition and we broke it down and we considered each part of it uh, as we went through it. Message number two, uh, we considered some key factors concerning the use of spiritual gifts. And remember, these were things such as unity and diversity and uh, quantity, and individuality, and responsibility, and humility, and charity. All of these are key factors uh, when we consider spiritual gifts, when we look at the body of Christ, which is where we see the spiritual gifts in operation, the New Testament church. Uh, these are critical factors. These are things that we ought to try to understand uh, as we seek to employ uh, spiritual gifts. If we do not do that, if we do not seek to understand these underlying factors and principles, we can end up with a real mess, a real mess. And I'm going to say a word or two more on that because in message number three, we took just that last factor, uh, which was charity, love, and we uh, just took the whole message just to look at uh, this foundational item of love, this foundational factor. And it is uh, critically critically important because, uh, well, first of all, when we look at the church at Corinth, and remember, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is one of our key texts on spiritual gifts. When we look at the church at Corinth, we see a church that had spiritual gifts. In fact, Paul said they didn't lack in any spiritual gifts, and they were using their spiritual gifts, but they were doing so in a way that was not in humility. It was not in charity. It was not in love, and the results were not good at all. Not good at all. So there is a very real possibility of a church exercising spiritual gifting, but doing so apart from humility, apart from charity, and the results will not be unity, but the results will be like they were in Corinth. Division, strife, contentions. These are things that Paul specifically named of the church in Corinth. And so we have to be aware of that. As I've studied this topic and uh, taken the, the four different key texts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Love, 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 love. It's all throughout. We cannot exercise spiritual gifts apart from love and expect God-blessed results. It's not going to happen. The results are going to be the opposite of what spiritual gifts are to do, which is to build up the body, to unify the body. And apart from love and humility, the spiritual gifts in operation are going to create division, strife, contention, and all kinds of things that we certainly do not want. They are not the blessings that God wants from them. So uh, last week we considered love's importance. Love's ideal, I should say this was really two weeks ago, but the last message we had on spiritual gifts, love's importance, love's ideal, and love's imperative. And I do encourage you, uh, if you have time and did not hear that, to please go back and listen to it because it's critical and foundational. 
Today, uh, we're going to consider the spiritual gifts themselves. Here's how we're going to break down the message today. I'm going to say from the outset, there's a lot to be covered. I'm going to do my best to speak quickly, and uh, I do trust that the Lord will help us as we go forward. We're going to consider briefly the operation of spiritual gifts. We're going to consider the categorization of spiritual gifts. Um, we have a printout. We may need to make more copies, but it was handed out already. I know we've got lots of visitors today. Um, maybe someone could just verify that we've got some prints there in the back. But anyway, the spiritual gifts, we have a printout where they're laid out uh, in an organized way. They're categorized. Um, it's not the final word on the categorization of the spiritual gifts, but I do uh, trust it will help us as we go forward today. So we're going to look a little bit at that. We trust as well the explanation and exemplification of the gifts themselves. And then finally, identification of spiritual gifts. So turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. I'm going to leave these four points up there. Uh, that's it for the PowerPoint, and I prefer it that way. So we can just uh, start looking at the text and taking what the Lord has for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as we consider point number one, the operation of spiritual gifts, and this is going to be a short point, but I do want to make uh, a note of an item or two here. 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, verse 4 says this, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. We've talked about this a lot over the last several weeks. There are a diversity of spiritual gifts, lots of different spiritual gifts, Different gifts given to different saints from different backgrounds with different personalities from different cultures and all of that. There are a, there are a diversity, a, a vast array of, of different spiritual gifts, but all given by the same spirit. Verse five says this, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Verse six says this, first Corinthians 12, verse six, and there are diversities of activities, the New King James says, I would suggest to you, and digging into this word, looking at different commentaries, the best way to understand activities is results, effectiveness, effects. There are diversities. In fact, I think the the New American Standard translates that word effects. There are diversities of activities or effects, but it is the same God who works all in all. So Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, a very nice outline, actually, three different things to consider. Differences of gifts, a diversity of gifts, differences of ministries, and differences in effectiveness, in results. So to the body of Christ has been given a wide array of different gifts. But we ought to know that any particular gift can be used in a wide array of ministries. So that, uh, take for instance, the gift of teaching. Not all gifted teaching is done from right here at this pulpit, right? We know that. There's gifted teaching that's done one-on-one, gifted teaching that's done in classroom settings. There's different ministries, different ways to utilize the gift of teaching. I'm not saying that the gift of teaching is something other than teaching. That's an important distinction. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the gift of teaching in being what it is can be used in a variety of ministries. And this is true of of each and every one of the gifts. A gifted shepherd can be used in in a broad corporate sense, shepherding the flock of God. There may be gifted shepherds that are not in the position of being over the the flock of God, but are still utilizing a gift of shepherding in dealing with different ones and caring for the sheep. There's a wide array of ministries where, uh, where any given gift can be used. So this creates, you could say, a broad spectrum of possibilities when it comes to, number one, the operation of spiritual gifts. But equally important is this. Verse 6 says there are diversities of activities. Again, that's the New King James, or diversities of effects. So here's what we have. Verse 4, diversities in, diversity in abilities. Uh, verse uh Five, diversities in areas of ministry. Verse six, diversities in effective, effectiveness in ministry. So that when the gifts are in operation through whatever ministry the Lord has given to each individual one, the results, the fruitfulness is ultimately in the hands of God. 
Okay? So not every gifted teacher is going to have the same effect or uh, fruitfulness. You may not see the broad spectrum uh, that any other given teacher is given. There are certain Bible teachers out there, and I'm just using teaching as one specific example because it's easy to see. There are gifted teachers out there that I think do a wonderful job, and they have a broad, broad, broad ministry that as I see it, the Lord has given to them. God has given their ministry this effectiveness. This is not because necessarily they're super gifted, but it's because the results are in God's hands. There are lots of gifted evangelists that are laboring, working within their gift and whatever the ministry is God has called them to, but they may not be seeing the results that they would maybe like to see. Perhaps the fruitfulness is not as evident. Because the Bible is very clear that the results are ultimately in God's hands. Uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the increase. Listen to the way that he words this in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, when it comes to the results. Now, This is what he's saying. When it comes to the results of ministry, of gifted ministry, you could say, he who plants is not anything. He who waters is nothing, but it is God who gives the increase. It is God who gives the results. The effectiveness of any particular gifted ministry, and that's what we want, brothers and sisters. We're saying spiritual gifts are real and they're really important. And we want to encourage each and every one to do their their best by God's grace to identify what God has given to them in spiritual gift to identify ministries where their spiritual gifts can be exercised. But do not be discouraged. Understand that the results are ultimately in God's hands. Ultimately in God's hands. It is God who gives the increase. So let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 2, a spirit-filled Peter preaches to a group of unbelieving Jews. Think about this. Acts chapter 2, a spirit-filled Peter proclaims the gospel. He says, listen, brothers, the, the man that you crucified, that's the Messiah. He's the king that God sent and you've crucified him. And if you know the story in Acts 2, you know that as Peter comes to his conclusion, this group of unbelieving Jews are cut to the heart. That means they're convicted of their sin. And they say, Peter, what do we need to do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And that day, 3,000 were added to the church. Now think about this. In Acts chapter 7, another man full of the Holy Spirit gifted in preaching the word of God by the name of Stephen, preaches to a group of unbelieving Jews. He lays out the gospel from creation to the cross in a beautiful way. In fact, if you want to use it, you could use Stephen's template today. It's a wonderful gospel presentation. How many got saved that day? None. How many? What what was the effect of it? What the effect of it in Stephen's case, was that these men, though cut to the heart, though convicted, just like Acts chapter 2, the same exact wording, they cover their ears, they charge at Stephen, they cast him to the ground, and they stone him to death. So what's the conclusion? Well, Peter must have been a gifted preacher, but not Stephen. Is that the appropriate conclusion? Not the appropriate conclusion, because ultimately the results, the effectiveness of any gifted ministry, which is what Paul is saying, diversity of gift, differences of ministry, differences in results. When we look back at the Old Testament, we could look at a man like Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Now, this would not be a spiritual gift, so to speak, in this time, because the spirit was not yet given in that sense. But no doubt, a man of God preaching to the world around him. How many were saved? His family. That's it. Have you ever been discouraged that way? Preaching the gospel to people around you? And it seems like maybe only the few within your own household have come to to faith in Christ. Well, that's the way it was for Noah. Contrast him with a man like Jonah. Jonah goes to a wicked, most wicked city. Some say the most wicked city in Old Testament history. 
and he preaches to them and the whole city gets converted all the way up to the king. So what's the conclusion? Well, Noah was an ungifted teacher, bad preacher. Jonah, he must have been a good preacher. Incorrect. But the reality is that the results, the effectiveness of gifted ministry are ultimately in God's hands. In fact, when we look at a man like Jonah, you know the story. It's not a very pleasant person. He went reluctantly. He didn't have a good heart about it. We can't even commend him in what he did in that sense. He initially didn't obey and so forth and so on into the, the ocean, into the, belly's mouth, the, 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 the belly of the whale, spit out. Finally, reluctantly, he goes and he preaches and the whole city repents. So, ultimately, the results, the effectiveness of any gifted ministry are in God's hands. I'm not saying that gifted ministry has no tie to fruitfulness. I'm not saying that. There is a tie to fruitfulness in gifted ministry. But the extent to which any gifted ministry is fruitful is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. I hope you believe that. It's very important. Otherwise, you could end up very, very, very discouraged and off-base biblically because the results are ultimately in God's hands. There's lots of other examples of this. In the book of Acts, uh, uh, there are two apostles that are seized in Acts chapter 12. One of them is released. One of them is beheaded. So what's the appropriate conclusion? Well, Peter must have had the gift of faith, but not James because his head was chopped off. Not necessarily. In fact, that would probably be a very wrong conclusion. So ultimately, the results of any gifted ministry are in God's hands. So that's uh, uh, number one, the operation of spiritual gifts. Number two, the categorization of spiritual gifts. Now, um, we have, again, a, a handout uh, that we're going to do uh, some referring to. Oh, boy. I missed. Oh, here it is. Okay. I've got my copy. So when we uh, took the gifts, taking all of the gifts that are named in the New Testament, there's a handout that looks like this, and we categorize them into uh, permanent gifts to the New Testament church and temporary gifts to the New Testament church. I said when I handed this out, I want you to understand uh, that this is conviction from the word of God. This is not accepted by every possible professing Christian out there as to how these gifts are categorized. So the fact that we see some of the spiritual gifts as being temporary gifts to the early New Testament church, not permanent gifts that would continue, such as gifts of prophecy and uh, tongues and gifts of healings, we see these as temporary gifts. I'm just saying from the outset, not everybody in Christendom does. So what I want to do, by God's grace and in all humility, I want to give you a little bit of an explanation as to the three major camps in broad Christendom and how they look at the spiritual gifts, okay? I hesitate in doing this because I am trying to make every effort to not draw divisions within the body of Christ. So I want to say from the outset that while I'm going to explain three camps within Christendom, I'm going to call one on the far left, one in the middle, and one on the right. I want to explain to you what their understanding is as quickly as I can. I want to say from the outset, please hear me, that there are many, many wonderful, godly, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying Christians that don't see this exactly the way that we do, okay? Many Christians that I love, and there are many that do see it the way that we see it, by the way. And just outside of our little circles, there are lots of people that, that interpret this the, the, the same way. But there are many that I would have no problem. In fact, I love fellowshipping with lots of Christians that truly preach the gospel. They may be from different backgrounds. They may be from different circles. They may be from different de denominations. I am not drawing divisions with them. However, it is helpful to understand if we're going to take, and we have really no choice, but to try to explain what our position is on these spiritual gifts. So three camps within broad Christendom. Hear me. Camp number one, 
I'm going to use the term on the far left, charismania. Immediately, I understand that you're going to think that's derogatory and demeaning. And in a sense, it is. Because when I refer to the far extreme left of charismania, there are many in this camp that I am fully convinced are wolves in sheep clothing. They are men that the Bible, the Bible calls out as savage wolves, brute beasts, clouds without water, for whom is reserved, Peter would say, the blackness of darkness forever. Many. And I'm talking about many on the far extreme left, and that's why I've used this term, charismania. I understand it's a bit derogatory and demeaning, but I am drawing a division with them. We don't stand with them. Men like Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen and Ted Haggerty and John Haggy and all these different men that are out there that preach a false gospel. They do not teach the word of God. They use these proclaimed spiritual gifts to their own advantage. And the Bible, not Mike, the Bible, Paul says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Who are these savage wolves? I'm asking you. I'm saying that these men and women on the far extreme left of charismania are the savage wolves. They use the name of Christ. They proclaim a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They proclaim a gospel that has its own holy trinity of health and wealth and prosperity, but it's not the trinity of the Bible. These men are wicked, wicked, wicked. And so I intentionally distinguish from them. However, as the pendulum swings across broad Christendom, there are varying degrees, of course, like anything, within broad Christendom, varying degrees, varying views, varying convictions. And so I'm not just lumping anyone and everyone who would call themselves a charismatic as being that. I'm not. But I am saying that there are well-known, self-proclaimed, Spiritual leaders that are wicked, savage wolves. Okay? Second Peter 2, Peter is very explicit about, he says, as there were false prophets, there will be false teachers in your day. We need to know this. There are false teachers out there that are teaching something that is not of the scriptures. It's not the true gospel of God. And many of them use the continuation, the supposed continuation of these spiritual gifts, gifts like healings, gifts of prophecy, they use them to their own selfish pleasures. They, they flood themselves with money, with pride, with power by using these things far out of context. However, as the pendulum swings toward the middle, there would be a second camp that I would call, many would call themselves continuationists, or some would say conservative continuationists. Like those in charismania, they would see the spiritual gifts that we would see as ceasing as continuing, hence the term continuationists. Many of these are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean it. I listen to some of their ministry. I benefit from of it, from some of it. I'm not drawing a division from them unnecessarily. We can have happy fellowship with them. They see the gifts as continuing. I'm going to explain that a little bit more as to where they're at. So three, charismania, continuationists, and then on the right, the cessationist camp. Okay, these are three camps that you will find within broad Christianity. What is a cessationist? Well, a cessationist essentially believes that the gifts ceased. We are very hesitant here to take any particular title to ourselves, okay? If there were a camp that we were to fall into, it would be the far right. So I'm going to say that just as clearly as I can. We are very hesitant to take any particular title because with titles often comes lots of baggage. We don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're thinking when you hear the term cessationist. I don't know what kind of things you've been exposed to. So we have to be careful. However, again, it is helpful, and I see no other way to, to explain this than to other than to give you the three major camps within broad Christendom. So within charismania, they would say 
that these spiritual gifts such as apostles, prophets, gifts of healings, miracles, gifts of tongues, and so forth, they would say on the extreme left that, of course, they're still happening. They would claim themselves oftentimes to be the apostles, to be the prophets, to be the healers, to be the divine authority. They would see these gifts, these signed miraculous gifts, as uh, gifts that continue in full effect, so to speak, and even to a greater degree, oftentimes a degree that is absolutely unbiblical. So not only would they claim to have the power that is seen in the apostles in the book of Acts, oftentimes, but they will claim it to even a degree of authority that far exceeds even what the apostles claimed. They will claim powers, healing powers, and prophetic powers that exceed that which the apostles claimed, or at least are to that full effect. So they would see these gifts continuing in full effect into an even greater degree, and oftentimes the leaders are self-proclaimed. They will often say they have a fourfold ministry or a fivefold ministry. Look at me. I am the evangelist. I am also the prophet. I'm also the pastor. I'm also the teacher. I'm also the apostle. They will claim to themselves a four or five-fold ministry, which I'm saying to you is not of the Lord. It's not biblical. And it's wrong. However, when we come to this middle group of continuationists or conservative continuationists, we will find, again, many good brothers and sisters who see the gifts also as continuing like those on the far left. However, you need to understand this. When they come to these gifts, specifically the big three, prophecy, healings, and tongues, they often see the gifts as continuing but in a degree or form that is lesser or secondary to what we see explicitly defined in the New Testament. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that when they come to the gift of, uh, say, prophecy, these in the middle camp will not say, thus saith the Lord. They will not speak supposed prophetic words as though, as though they are the divine words of God, like those on the far left extreme will do. So what then is the gift of prophecy in this middle group, this middle camp? Many of them will see it as a third form of prophecy, a lesser secondary form of prophecy, something more of a divine unction, a feeling you could say at times that the Lord may put into somebody's heart to share with them. While I don't agree with it, I'm very grateful that that's the approach and not the approach of those on the extreme left that will say, thus saith the Lord, this is divine word from God himself. They don't do that. So let me give you an example. John Piper is a uh, would be considered a continuationist in this middle camp. And regarding the gift of prophecy, this is the way he would explain it. He would say, it is still a valid and useful gift for the church today. What is it? It is a spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained utterance that is rooted in a true revelation, but it is fallible, that means it's subject to error, because the prophet's perception of the revelation and thinking about the revelation and report of the revelation are all fallible, subject to error. It is thus similar to the gift of teaching, which is spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, rooted in infallible revelation, and yet is fallible, but he says he believes it's still very useful to the church today. He would say this, the gift of prophecy in this middle camp of continuationists or conservative continuationists, the gift of prophecy does not have an authority that is on par with the scriptures. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you. We, we see very much eye to eye on this part of it. He says the scripture is verbally inspired, not just spirit prompted and spirit sustained. The very words of the biblical writers are the very words of God. This is not true of the words that come from the New Testament gift of prophecy. So 
what you need to understand, I'm not just saying this to cast stones at them. I'm not. I want you to understand what their perception of the gift actually is. The New Testament gift of prophecy, he would say, is a third category of prophetic utterance. Between the two categories of verbally inspired, intrinsically authoritative, infallible speech spoken by, like Moses, Jesus, and the apostles, and the secondary form, or the second form, which is false prophets, which was spoken presumptuously without the Spirit's inspiration and liable to condemnation, according to Deuteronomy. So he says these two, those two categories, infallible prophecy and false prophecy, are not all that the Bible has to say on prophecy. This is where he's at. Listen, I know that this may not be intriguing to many, but I'm going to do my best to explain what it is. So, prophecy in this third category is, according to him, a regulated message or report in human words, usually made to a group of Christians based on spontaneous personal revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edification, encouragement, and so forth, but not necessarily free from a mixture of human error, and thus it needs assessment on the basis of the apostolic Bible teaching and mature spiritual wisdom. Last thing I'm going to read from him. This is his practical suggestion. So if you were to believe this third form of prophecy and say, I think I might have this gift of prophecy. I'm not saying that I agree with this, but if you were, he would say, here's a practical suggestion. Muster up the courage to speak out what you believe with more or less confidence. Uh, with more or less confidence, it may be given to you from the Lord in gatherings designed for this less, less structured expression. Have humble expectations that the prophecy will not be taken as a word from Scripture, but as spirit prompted human word to be weighed by scripture and by mature spiritual wisdom. Listen to this. For a prophecy to be accepted as valid, it should find an echo in the hearts of spiritually mature people. Listen to the subjectivity of this. It should be confirmed by biblically saturated insight. It should resonate in the hearts and minds of those who have the mind of Christ and are ruled by his peace. So basically in this middle camp, there are, they are continuationists, so they say the gifts continue, but they continue, you need to understand, in a form that is lesser or secondary than what we can see clearly defined in the scripture. Biblical prophecy, the, 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 the clear understanding of biblical prophecy is divine inspiration that is authoritative and infallible. Old Testament prophets, if they misspoke, if they gave false prophecies, they were considered false prophets. But what the middle continuationist group has is a gifting where supposedly you could speak false prophecies maybe 90% of the time, but you're still exercising the gift of prophecy. What I'm saying is I don't see it. I don't see the biblical support for such a third category of biblical prophecy. I don't see it. I don't see it as being logical or helpful. I don't see it as being biblical. In order for us to get to a third category, this would apply as well to the gift of tongues. What we see with the gift of tongues specifically exemplified in scripture, there is one case that is explicit, which is Acts chapter two. This was the gift of tongues. People that could not previously speak in a certain language were given the miraculous ability to spontaneously speak revelation from God in another known language. The other people that were around were confused, not because they were babbling, but because they heard men speak in their own language that could not. They weren't from their area. They said, how can this be? These men are speaking in a language. They're from this particular area, Jerusalem. We're coming from other areas. We're hearing them speak in our own language. So in the continuationist camp, what they have with tongues, as I see it, is a secondary or lesser form of tongues. So that tongues, according to the continuationist camp, and it's a relatively large camp, is not what we see in Acts 2. But it's this ecstatic utterance, 
this divine speaking to God that is just something strictly between the speaker and the Lord. I could say lots and lots and lots more about this. There's many things about their approach to it that I commend, but I simply don't see the biblical evidence for saying these things are New Testament spiritual gifts that are continuing today, but in a different form and function than what we see them in the New Testament. I I don't see it. The same would be true of the gift of healings. In the far left in charismania, there are lots of them that Benny Hinn will push you down and say you're healed. And he's full of it. He's loaded. He's got, there's nothing to that. It's demonic. It's untruthful. Lots of these men have been exposed in their heresy. In the middle continuationist camp, they would say the gift also continues, but none of them would do it like what we see in the book of Acts. Paul lined people up and healed them. Peter's shadow, I mean, handkerchiefs were given. People were immediately, authoritatively, divinely healed on the spot, fully healed. In the middle camp of continuationists, they will pray for healing. They will call it the gift of healing. But they, just like us, are pleading with the Lord, please bring healing, and he may or may not according to his sovereign will. And so in that respect, we're on the same page. I just don't see it as the gift of healing. I don't see these gifts, what they see as the lesser form or secondary form, I don't see biblical support for creating another form or function to these gifts. Okay? Having said all that, I'm going to repeat that many of these are good brothers and sisters that I love and like issues like baptism and church church responsibilities and church function, all these things, there are varying views within there. So I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying I don't see the biblical support for creating a secondary or lesser form of the miraculous gifts such as prophecy and healings and miracles uh, to in order to see them as continuing. Many of them, like John Piper, will emphatically say, and I'm quoting him, there has never been a time in church history regarding here, me, uh, healings and miracles like there was in the book of Acts. Never in the last 2,000 years. He's a continuationist. He sees it as a continuing gift, but he emphatically says there's never been a time like that. So what then do they do? Well, again, I, I see it as a lesser. They see it as a lesser secondary form of these gifts. Camp number one, charismania. Camp number two, conservative continuationists or continuationists. And then the third camp, and again, there is a spectrum of people falling in between here, is cessationists. Can I just say for a second, this has not been my favorite sermon to prepare or preach. It's not been. This is difficult. I'd much rather talk about love like I did last week. But I do think that this is important. So the third camp, cessationists, would see these gifts, such as prophecy and healings and miracles, as being temporary gifts to the early church. But then one must ask the logical question, why? Why would God give certain gifts to the early New Testament church that were going to cease, that were not going to continue uh, for the rest of church history? And it's a worthwhile question, a valid question. And the simple answer is this. These gifts were needed. This is the, the most simple form of this answer. These gifts were needed in the foundation and early function of the church. They did not have a complete canon of scripture. What they had were apostles that were followers of Jesus, that they themselves were preaching the message that Jesus commissioned them to preach, And in their preaching, God gave them the ability to do things so that people could say, these men were just like Jesus. We saw him doing these things. They're preaching a message to us. These works affirm that they are followers of Jesus. So the gifts that were given to the apostles, gifts such as healings and tongues, were sign gifts. These were gifts that were given in order that the world may be able to see that the message that they preached is the message that Jesus preached. It's the truth of God. These men are from God. 
Let me give you a couple of scriptures for this. You would rightfully ask the question, is there any biblical support? There is biblical support. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says this. Second Corinthians, not first Corinthians, 12, 12 says this. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So the apostle Paul would call these the signs of an apostle. They are gifts that were given to the New Testament church to validate the message and the messengers. This would be the reason why they would cease once the canon of Scripture is complete. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Hebrews chapter 2 says this. In verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God bearing witness. The gifts were given to affirm, to bear witness that these men and their message was from God. This was the purpose. I would suggest to you, and I am fully persuaded, that miracles at large in the scriptures were given to validate the message in the messenger. Biblical miracles were not primarily given to fix men's problems, to make life better. I'm fully persuaded of this. Now, there are some, obviously, that would disagree with me. Miracles that come from God, their primary function and purpose was not to just fix men's problems. Jesus left lots of people unhealed. He did. There were four there are four primary, think about this for a minute, primary um, periods of miracle working in the scripture. Four primary. Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. If we removed those four groups or those four from the scriptures, what we would be left with as far as miracles wrought by the hand of man is very, very scarce. Think about the book of Genesis for a minute. Genesis gives us characters such as Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. How many miracles were done by the hands of Adam and Noah? Like, did, 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 did Noah uh, poof and the ark was built? No, he went about it by natural means. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I'm not saying that God was not sovereignly working and doing at times miraculous things. He was. But draw the distinction between miracles by the hand of man, by miracle workers, like we see with Moses, and God sovereignly working. So when I look at Joseph and his rise from the pit to power, I say that's a miracle from God. But that's not the gift of miracles or the miracles by the hand of man. This is God sovereignly working through circumstances, doing things that at times have no other explanation than are supernatural. I believe that. I affirm that. God is still doing that today. When I look at the flood, you say, well, was that a miracle? I don't know, was it? God destroyed the earth with water. There had never been rain. This was the divine hand of God. This was, in a real sense, in my estimation, a miracle of judgment. I believe it. Absolutely. But there is a distinction between miracle workers, miracles by the hands of man, men, and miracles that are done by the sovereign divine hand of God. When Sarah could not have a baby, but then became pregnant, this was a miracle. I've got no problem with that. Absolutely. She shouldn't have had a baby. When I look out at the world around me, I ask myself simple questions. Have I ever seen natural causes bring judgment 
similar to the flood in our day and age? Yeah. Hurricane Katrina? Hurricane Dorian? I don't know what God's sovereign purpose was with that, but to the eye of faith, this is God's sovereign hand working. I've got no problem with that. I've known people that the doctor said could never get pregnant and become pregnant, like Sarah. I've got no problem with that. God is sovereignly working. I've got no problem with that. But miracles by the hand of man are different. Look, please, at Exodus chapter 4. As you turn to Exodus 4, think about this for a minute. The book of Genesis covers at least a couple thousand years of history perhaps three to 4,000 years of history. We have little to no miracles by the hands of man, by miracle workers in the book of Genesis. I'm suggesting to you that is the norm. That is what is the norm in God's purposes on earth. But you say, what about Moses? Like every Sunday school story we hear seems to be about a miracle. Think about this. Four periods, four primary periods of miracle working in the Bible by the hands of men, covering maybe 200 years of 6,000 years of human history. Sometimes we get the misperception that all of history was men doing miracles because all of our Sunday school stories seem to center around the miracles of Moses. But this is not the reality. Listen to what happens in Exodus. Moses has been commissioned by God to take a message and to be God's messenger. This is important. Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. And you're going to proclaim to a whole group, a whole nation whom you haven't lived with, that you're the one that I'm using to call you out of Egypt. You're going to bear the message. You're going to be the, bear, be the messenger. So listen to what Moses says in Exodus chapter 4. Moses answered and said, but, he's speaking to the Lord, suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And he said, a rod. And the Lord said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. This was the first miracle that Moses did. Notice what verse five says. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So the primary purpose of the miracles of Moses was not simply to meet the needs of the children of Israel. The reason why God gave Moses this ability is so that they, the people, the Israelites would believe and no doubt that Pharaoh would come to believe or accept the fact that this man is of God. His message is of God. These miracles were given as affirmation, as verification for the message in the messenger. And I, you could go on and read because there's another, put your hand in your bosom, the whole leprous hand. And he says uh, in verse 8, it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, they may believe the message of the latter sign. Do you see the signs? Believe the message. That's the point. Do you see the signs in the Gospel of John? Believe the message. This, we repeated this tons of times in the Gospel of John. John would say, Jesus did lots of other miracles. He specifically calls them signs because they were pointing to something. He did lots of other miracles that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded for what? So that you can say, Lord, I can't wait. That's me. I'm going to be the one doing the miracles. No, but that you would believe. These gifts were given as signs to affirm the message, affirm the messenger. Brothers and sisters, I, I mean, go through the Gospel of John. I'll give you references. Jesus pled with people, stop asking for more signs. Believe me. The signs are not the point. The Gospel is the point. I'm the point. I'm the messenger, and I have a message for you. Believe the message. 
The signs are given from God to affirm the message, to affirm the messenger. I've got lots of references through the Gospel of John. This is the primary purpose. If we understand this, it will help us in understanding why God gave the apostles the ability to do miracles that we no longer see today. And I appreciate a brother like John Piper who says, I think it continues, but I'm just going to say right up front, we've never seen anything like what we see in the book of Acts. Not even close. Not even close as far as healings and miracles and so forth. Because it was a message that needed to be affirmed. The messengers needed to be affirmed before the completion of the scriptures. I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles today, brothers and sisters. He does. But miracles by the hand of man were given for a specific purpose to affirm the message, to affirm the messenger. And this is my conviction from Scripture. In the cessationist camp, this is the primary reason why we see these gifts as ceasing. All right. Explanation and exemplification of spiritual gifts. I appreciate the brothers giving us lots of time this morning. To go through this. I'm going to go as quickly as I can. There's tons more to say about that. I know I might have offended some people. I understand that. I'm not saying I have the last word on it. I'm not saying everything in the cessationist camp is true. Understand me on that. Maybe one day the Lord will show me otherwise. I'd be happy to look at it, happy to discuss it. I know this is very sensitive. I understand that. And I love many, many, many brothers and sisters that don't see this exactly the way that I do. Please understand that. Okay, if you have the sheet, let's run through these gifts very quickly. Turn to page uh, one of the sheet, which are permanent gifts to the church. Permanent gifts to the church. Gifts such as evangelism and shepherding and teaching and exhorting and leadership and service and giving and mercy and faith and helps and administration. These are the gifts on page one of this list. I want to say that defining some of the gifts can be a challenge. It can be. Coming up with solid understanding, solid definitions of what exactly is this gift, with some of them can be a challenge, but with some of them, it's actually quite easy. We've got lots of cross-references and lots of things to look at. So the gift of evangelism. The gift of evangelism uh, is uh, simple. A bringer of good tidings. One who heralds salvation. A preacher of the gospel. A preacher of good tidings. It is very, very simple. There is a man in the Bible that was called an evangelist. Turn to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to run now. So run with me, please. Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist in the scriptures is one, I think, I think only one that's actually called an evangelist. But listen to what he does. I mean, it's super simple as far as what evangelism is. Acts chapter 8 and verse 5 says this, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. This is evangelism. Tell people about Jesus. Proclaim Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. This is essentially what evangelism is. We all understand this. We all know this. There's lots of examples in the scripture, and including another example in Acts chapter 8, where Philip does not only public evangelism, but private evangelism. Remember, there was a man on the chariot, He's reading the Bible and he says, I don't understand what this means. It happens to be he's reading Isaiah 53. I like some of those circumstances, but it seems that they come to Philip the evangelist. And so Philip gets up and he says to him, well, let me explain to you what this means. And he preached Jesus to him. This is evangelism. Preach Jesus to the people around you. Evangelists will often do anything in their zeal and everything for the gospel. I can't turn to it, but please read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Paul, as it seems, one of his possibly many gifts was evangelism. And he basically says, I'll do anything. To the Jew, I'll be a Jew. To the Greek, I'll be a Greek. I'll do anything for the sake of the gospel. When you come across an evangelist, someone who's gifted in evangelism, or maybe you are one, I trust that we have lots here today, Anything for the sake of the gospel. Everything surrounds the gospel. We need to get Jesus to the world around us. This is evangelism. Brothers and sisters, we need evangelists. I trust that we're thinking, maybe that's my gift. Maybe the Lord will use me. Maybe that's me to be a preacher of Jesus. Again, as we've said before, everyone should be doing all of these things. Please, I have to be repetitive a little bit, but everyone should be doing all of these gifts. We should be. 
but there are some who are gifted in a supernatural way to do these things. Maybe I'll go and do what Philip does, and maybe I won't see the results that Philip saw because he was a gifted evangelist. But the Lord has called all of us, no doubt, to evangelize. Please think, maybe you are one of our gifted evangelists. Shepherding. Sheep without a shepherd is an awful situation. Awful situation. The Lord Jesus explains sheep without a shepherd in Matthew chapter 9. He says they're harassed and helpless, these sheep without a shepherd. They're distressed and dispirited. They're weary and scattered. Sheep without shepherds is awful. You know what sheep are like without shepherds? They, they, they wander. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to get food, water. God has called certain ones to be shepherds in the church of God. What do shepherds do? Look at the Lord Jesus. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. This is the Lord Jesus. John chapter 10 tells us that as a shepherd, he knows the sheep and he's known by the sheep. He leads the sheep. He sets an example for the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He gives himself for the sheep and he cares about the sheep. This is what shepherds do. Shepherds care for the sheep no matter the cost. They'll protect the flock, feed the flock, care for the flock. God's church needs shepherds, pastors, those who will care for, feed, nourish the flock of God. This gifting as I study, seems very closely linked to the gift of leadership, which we'll consider in a minute because a good deal of it is leading leading the sheep. And we get that as well from Psalm 23. Teaching, number three. Teaching, the Greek word, by the way, means teacher, believe it or not. Very simple. We know what teaching is essentially. It is not just the ability to study the scriptures, but to effectively communicate the scriptures. Lots of us and all of us really should be studying the scriptures. But there is a gifting from God to certain individuals to effectively explain the scriptures. If you've ever heard... Okay, I'll leave that alone. So teaching is more than just proclaiming. That's preaching. Preachers proclaim... I want evangelists proclaim, I want to tell the world about Jesus. But teachers explain. They explain the scriptures. Paul did this again. I'm willingly saying I think Paul had many gifts from God due to the necessity of it. He explained the scriptures. That's repeated time and time again in the book of Acts. The ability to explain the word of God so that the listeners can hear and understand this is teaching. We need teachers, obviously, or it wouldn't be one of the gifts that God has given. Of course, again, we all should be teaching. Colossians 3 says we're to be teaching one another. Yes, that's true. But there are gifted teachers who are given to effectively communicate the word of God. Not just to proclaim it, but to explain it. Explain it in a way that it can be understood. Exhortation. The word is used tons of times in the New Testament. If you're confused about exhortation, I'm going to give you one synonym that you're safe to use for it, okay? So if someone says to you after the meeting, well, I might be an exhorter, but I don't know what that means. Here's the closest synonym, encouragement. The Greek word for exhortation is from the same root as that word given to the Holy Spirit, paraclete. One who comes alongside to encourage, to strengthen, to build up. So what is exhortation? Exhortation involves coming to one side or calling to one side to address, to speak to, in a way that would bring, uh, uh, in a way that's pleading, perhaps urging, imploring, that the recipient would be stirred up, consoled, encouraged, and strengthened. This is exhortation, to come alongside And brothers and sisters, we need this in the New Testament church. We need those who see the struggling saint and recognize it and have the boldness and gentleness. This is not the church bouncer. This is not the church discourager. This is the one in the church who sees the struggling saint, recognizes the need, 
and has the boldness and gentleness because it's going to be a close relationship to come alongside, maybe put an arm around and encourage them along, that they would be strengthened, that they would be built up very rapidly. Leadership. And uh, there's tons of examples of exhortation in the Bible, by the way, tons and tons. I wanted to talk about Barnabas a little bit, but we can't do that. Leadership. Leadership, again, tied very much to shepherding. It, this, the, the Greek word is used about eight times in the New Testament and most often in the context of church elders. So my deduction is that church elders, generally speaking, should have the gift of leadership. That is the gift, a gifting in presiding, directing, leading, according to uh, the Strong's Concordance. And so oftentimes leaders, uh, I'm sorry, elders will have gifts of leadership and uh, gifts of shepherding. Those kind of all work together, although there's no doubt that there may be some who have a, uh, the gift but are not called into the office of being an elder, and that's quite all right. Service. Service is simple. And again, I hope that you recognize we're just moving down this list if you have a sheet in front of you. Service is ministering. The operation of the grand and glorious New Testament church needs simple service. The New Testament church and all of its grandeur and glory and beauty needs simple service. We need simple servants. Gifted servants will be looking for opportunities to serve the body. Gifted servants may not be aware of every need in the local church, but they will be happy to be made aware of the needs in the local church. True servants are okay with receiving even commands about things that need to be done. Of course, we'll always do that in love, but this is the gift of service. If there's one gift that is most closely linked to the Lord Jesus. There is no doubt that the Lord Jesus is a tremendous evangelist and the shepherd of shepherds and the teacher of teachers and the exhorter of exhorters and the leader of leaders, but service is no exception. The Lord Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It was Jesus in John 13 that washed the feet of the disciples. It was Jesus in John 21 that prepared the meal for the disciples. Hey, some of us men say, that's not for me preparing a meal. I don't do that. But the Lord Jesus was willing to. And so service is never to be neglected. It, ex- it, is, it is closely linked to the heart and character of the Lord Jesus himself. I have to read one example. Listen, we have some gifted servants here in our midst. I hope you know that. You may not see them. You may not know of them, but we have some gifted servants. We had a brother come through, a family actually, not long ago, commended workers that have a fair amount of needs. And they went, they came here, left their vehicle, flew off to another country to do the work of the Lord. And upon their arrival back, this uh, commended working family said this. They sent a note to the assembly. We probably should have just read this before the whole assembly. But they said this, one of the faithful local saints from the assembly that meets at Boulevard Bible Chapel brought our van to us, and then made his way home by alternate means. Not only had he safely kept our car, he changed the oil, he had a nail removed, and a tire repaired. He filled it with gas, put on new windshield wipers, and did some inside cleaning, as well as a car wash. To say that we were touched by the Lord's care for us through this person is an understatement. What a way to begin a two-day drive home. One of our gifted servants took, hey, there's a need. This brother and sister, they went off to serve the Lord over there. Look at that car. It looks awful. Uh, They've got a bunch of kids dirtying that thing up. I'm going to go in. I'm going to take it and clean it. Oh, my goodness, look at this. There's a nail in the tire. Well, I'll leave it for them when they get back. No, I'll take it and I'll get it fixed. What a tremendous example. The grand and glorious New Testament church needs simple servants. It's not to be diminished. It's not a lesser gift. We need servants in the New Testament church badly. There's tons and tons more. The rewards of a servant are tremendous. Giving is one of the gifts. Giving 
goodness, we're out of time. But giving is simply meeting physical needs by redistributing the Lord's resources. God has given to some excess, and there are others with need, and gifted givers are happy to know about the needs that they might meet them. What a gift to the local assembly. Mercy, faith, helps administration. I'll take those on a personal level. If anyone has any, I have to stop. The Lord is so good. He has gifted you. Spiritual gifts are real and they're really important. Please get to understand them. Get to know them. Pursue the Lord in love. Love has affection. Love has action. How will you know what gift you have? Love, love, love. Both the sacrifice and the sincere care of love. Don't know what your gift is? Pursue love, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14. One, pursue love, pursue love, both the action and the affection of love, and God will work out the rest. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to know you, to be a part of your great work here on earth. Thank you for the way that you have not only given us the gift of salvation, but have given us spiritual gifts, grace upon grace. What a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Help us, Lord, to be moved and stirred, to recognize what you've gifted us with, to employ it, to put it into action in love in this local assembly, we pray in Jesus' name.